Good morning. Again, I'm Brandon Barrett, lead pastor here. And if you're visiting, I'd too like to welcome you. Thanks for joining us for worship this morning. We're in a series on the book of Mark, and uh, we'll be wrapping that up uh, appropriately enough at Easter here in a few weeks. But where we come in the text now, in chapter 13, we're going to be looking at Mark chapter 13. We're in the final week of Jesus' life as he is headed in a matter of days to the cross. Uh, This morning, again, Mark 13, you'll find that on page 849 if you're using one of the Pew Bibles. Let me pray for us and then we'll read. Let's pray. Father, we uh, thank you for the privilege it is to come before your word this morning. Uh, You've invited us in today. You've welcomed us to worship. You have uh, heard our praises sung. You've heard our prayers lifted up. You've heard our confessions, and you've assured us of your pardon. Um, first to last, this comes because you, you come after us. You initiate with us. And one of the ways you initiate is to bring us the gift of your word that we might know you. So we pray right now that you would use that word to do its intended work, to soften our hearts, to turn us around, to encourage us where we need to be encouraged. Lord, we uh, pray that you would do your good work through your word, and we ask it in the name of Jesus our Savior and Lord. Amen. Mark chapter 13, beginning in verse 1. As he, Jesus, came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones, what wonderful buildings. Jesus said, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? Then Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. But be on your guard. For they will deliver you over to councils and you will be beaten in synagogues and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. When they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but whatever is given you in that hour... For it is not uh, you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child. And children will rise against parents and have them put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where it ought not to be, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down, nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. False Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. 
But in those days after the tribulation, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will be falling from heaven, the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, the ends of the earth and to the ends of heaven. From the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branches become tender and put out its leaves, you know the summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things have taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day and that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey. When he leaves home and he puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and he commands the doorkeeper to stay awake, therefore stay awake. For you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight or when the cock crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. What I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. This is the word of the Lord, and it's given to us for our good and for his glory. You know, there are certain passages in Scripture uh, that when you read them, the meaning is just right there on the surface, and it doesn't take much time to really work through it, does it? I mean, this is certainly one of those passages. Mark himself, in an editorial comment, says, you know, let the reader understand. Let's just pack it up and go home, right? <clears throat> you know, you come, and maybe for most of you, unless you're reading ahead this week, this, this is your first this is your first run through on Mark 13 for this week, and as you can imagine, I've been in it all week, and it is one of those, um, it's just one of those passages, right, where it is full of things where you go, what in the world is going on here in this passage? Uh, yet, this passage, Mark 13, this teaching is the single longest teaching on a subject that Jesus gives in the entire book of Mark. It's his longest teaching discourse. It's called the, uh, the Olivet Discourse. It takes place on the Mount of Olives opposite Jerusalem. Mark, in a famously brief gospel, gives an enormous amount of space to what Jesus had to say about this topic. Jesus is talking about his return, that he is coming back. And the simple point that we're going to get uh, from this this morning is just this, that we are, this, that we are to live in light of Christ's return, that we are to be ready, that we are to be awake. That's what this passage is about. So we're going to see uh, three things here in service of that. First, we're going to see that he is returning. Second thing is that, uh, that we're, we see here that we should not be deceived. And thirdly, that we are to stay awake. So see that he's returning. Don't be deceived and stay awake. That's what's going on in our passage this morning. First, see that he is returning. Uh, the passage opens up, verse 1, with the disciples as they're walking out of the temple one of these days of the festival, the last week of Jesus' life. And one of the disciples looks and says, look, you know, look how magnificent these buildings are, Jesus. Look at, look at the architecture. Look at the size, the magnitude. Look how amazing this work of uh, religious architecture is. They are in awe of the temple. This is uh, actually it's, it's what came to be known as, as Herod's temple. Uh, under Solomon in the Old Testament, uh, King Solomon constructed the first temple in Jerusalem, which was later destroyed when the Babylonians came in and took uh, the inhabitants of Jerusalem to, into exile in Babylon. It was later rebuilt some 70-odd years later when the people of Israel returned to the land. 
But now it is in the middle of, uh, of a facelift and an expansion by King Herod. He is pouring uh, lots and lots of money of national treasure into uh, refurbishing and even redesigning and enlarging the temple. Uh, it was not finished until it was about 66 AD, so it's still got about 30 years of work to be done on it here. It's in construction, but the disciples walk out and say, this building is amazing. And the records that we have from other sources of the temple uh, just, they portray a building that we would almost not even believe if we were to see it. It was enormous. The temple complex took, out, took a, about 35 acres. There were several temple buildings there. Uh, there was this enormous uh, colonnade uh, up to the temple. The, the columns, each of those columns Josephus tells us it would take three men holding their arms together to encircle one of those columns. It was several stories high. Josephus talks about how enormous the blocks are. He knows here that you know, they say how, how amazing the stones. They, Josephus, this historian, talks about how amazing and huge these stones were that built the temple. Uh, in fact, the, the largest of these stones that has been discovered on the Temple Mount uh, what, comes in at, at this size. It was measured at 42 feet long. 11 feet high, 14 feet deep, and weighing a million pounds. That's one block of the temple. This was a building of enormous magnitude. It, it was one of the most spectacular buildings ever, ever built in ancient history. Uh, I would imagine that we would have trouble figuring out what to do with a million pound stone now. It would make engineers scratch their head. It was this unbelievable building. And they were in awe of it. And as they pointed out to Jesus, he turns in the ultimate downer and says, you know, this is a really nice building, but the day is coming when not one of these enormous stones will still be standing one on top of another. You see, for them, this temple is the disciples look around. In one sense, there's this, you know, we, we have arrived. Uh, I mean, look, look, look what we've achieved in the temple and look what uh, the God of Israel has done. We've got the greatest temple going. We've got it going on. And yet Jesus says that there is a day that is coming when uh, the Son of Man will return. There's a day coming when there is judgment, when there is a last day, when there are things, a reversal that will bring to utter destruction what has happened here. In the parable at the end of our, par of our passage, which we'll look at in more detail in a moment, talks about the Master returning. He says, the Master is coming back. Now, this chapter, um, here is the one... Uh, sort of simple key that's going to help you understand what's going on here so you don't get lost too much in the details. There are two fulfillments that Jesus is talking about at the same time. There are two things going on. Jesus speaks about people fleeing into the hills. He speaks of the abomination that causes desolation that will, be, uh, that, that will come. He's, he speaks of uh, destruction that's on its way, this cataclysmic change. Well, the first fulfillment of what Jesus speaks about has already taken place. And it took place in the year A.D. 70 when uh, the soon-to-be emperor Titus marched in with the Roman army after several years of laying siege to Jerusalem, a time of great tribulation and uh, suffering for the people of Jerusalem who were caught in the city, ran out of water, ran out of food, they resorted to cannibalism, all kinds of things happened in the siege of Jerusalem until they... Roman armies broke in, they destroyed Jerusalem, they tore the temple down stone by stone, which is why in Jerusalem there's still a temple mount with no temple on it, because it was destroyed by the Romans. 
This is what Jesus is speaking about at the first level of uh, fulfillment of, of, of what he's talking about here. That, he, that there was going to be this time of terrible destruction, of ultimate judgment on the temple. He had said himself, if you've been here in previous weeks and look back in previous chapters, since he's come into Jerusalem, he has been bringing incredible critique against the worship of the temple. Because it has become lifeless, because it has wandered from God, because the temple is not fulfilling the role that God intended for it to proclaim his word to the ends of the world. It was failing and God's judgment came upon it. And that's what happened in its fullness in A.D. 70. But as you see, there are also aspects of this where Jesus speaks of the Son of Man coming back in the clouds using this picture of, from Daniel of, uh, of the Son of Man, one of Jesus' favorite designations for himself, coming in, in majesty and in judgment. When the elect, it says, will be gathered from the ends of the world, he's speaking beyond A.D. 70 to a time of the end when the Son is coming back in a final way. Both those things are being talked about in this passage together. And let me see if I can give you a visual picture of it. A few weeks ago in uh, the Gazette, uh, there was, you know, that section that's got endless pictures of people in Williamsburg? Like, you, students, you should move to Williamsburg. Your chances of, of being in the paper, your picture being in the paper, are higher here than any other city in the United States. You can get in there. Anytime somebody shakes a hand with somebody else, there's a picture of them in the Gazette. And there was this one picture a couple weeks ago with this group of guys, adult guys. They had done some race or something, and, and surely they didn't know this picture would actually end up in the Gazette because there was this group of guys sort of arms around each other, and one of them, you look, and the guy's got the little rabbit fingers behind his ear. Now, you, you think you sort of stopped doing that about age 12, but this group of adult men were, were doing this. So you, you've seen pictures like that, or you've done that to your friends, or you've seen it. You, you look at a picture, and there's a person's head, and there are the rabbit ears that are sticking out of their head. Now... You and I know the rabbit ears are not really growing out of their head. What would happen if you took that picture, the scene, and you rotated it 90 degrees so you look, you were standing next to the picture being taken? What would you see? You'd see a row of men, and then you'd see some space, and you'd see one of the guys with his arm reaching out behind and two fingers up, right? You'd see there are two planes to that picture. But when you look at it from the front, it looks like he's got fingers sticking out of his head, right? We know how the rabbit ears work. But, but that's sort of a visual illustration of what's going on here. Jesus is telling a story, is, is, is giving us um, prophecy here about things that happen in two different planes. But we see them here in the perspective of the story put together. We see both the heads and the rabbit ears at the same time. Jesus is speaking about some things that were fulfilled in A.D. 70 and some things that stand behind that that were yet to be fulfilled. But he speaks about it in, in terms of this one encompassing picture of judgment. Does that make a little sense? Okay, so we're, we're, we're seeing both planes of that happening at the same time, which is why we look back and can see some of the historical fulfillment of this, but it still speaks to us. Because there is a day of judgment, it says, that is still coming. And frankly, this fact is what Jesus tries to hammer in in the course of this whole chapter, that he is returning, that there was an aspect of return and judgment in A.D. 70, and he is still coming back. And it would have been common knowledge and common understanding for his disciples and for the people of Israel to think that the king is coming, but as always, Jesus surprised the, surprises them in the way in which he is going to come back to them. Now, in our day, it's not a sort of commonly accepted as it would have been then that God was coming back in this sort of climactic way. Uh, Peter puts his finger on this in 
Second Peter, he, he sort of mentions kind of what it looks like in our days. Scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They'll say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. In other words, where's the coming that we keep hearing about? We don't see God returning. And maybe we don't need him to return. Uh, I apologize. It's been several months since we've had a, a Lord of the Rings illustration, so I thought that would be a good... Yeah, th- there's this character from, from this magnificent city called Gondor, and his name's Boromir, and he is the heir of Gondor. He is, his father is the steward. The kings, the, re- the line of kings had disappeared hundreds of years before, and there were now stewards that stood in the place to hold the city together until the king would finally come. And Boromir, the heir, at one point when he is introduced to the man who will be king, says, Gondor has no king, and Gondor needs no king. Maybe we in our world feels that way too. There is no king who's returning, and we don't need him to come back either. But that's what Jesus goes, is it pains to show us here, that he is coming back, that there is a return. And take him at his word for just a minute. And don't you see that, that if we take that, that that is to give us a certain cast or a certain perspective on life for us even now. You know that uh, permanence and security, they're, they're all relative in the sight of this. This enormous temple and its stones could not stand. Because you see, he tells us that there is a day that is on God's calendar when he is going to return. That, that he's coming back. We don't know when that day is, but God does. He says that is real. That is a reality that we live under. That our king is returning. Can you see that that is maybe meant to change the way we look at our days and our lives. Elizabeth and I were thinking about how that, that's to affect the way even we think about raising our kids. How do we raise our kids so that they see that when there is real uh, trial and temptation and difficulty in life, even persecution, that God is not off his throne, that he is still there, that he is good, that he is working out his purposes, that he is returning? You know, how do we see teach our kids to see and live in that light of that sort of eternal perspective? Well, I mean, you see that when we start talking about our kids, it's only one step away from the the prior question is, how do we see this ourselves? How do we grasp that for ourselves? How do we live in light of that? That's what Jesus is at pains to show us, that he is coming back, and that has implications for us. Okay, so this first thing, we see that he is returning. The second thing that we see is that we are not to be deceived, that we're warned not to be deceived. Jesus goes across from the temple to the Mount of Olives where he's been retiring at the end of the day with his disciples. And and Peter, James, John, and Andrew uh, ask Jesus when they get him for a moment alone, they ask the question that that we would be asking here in verse 3. When is this going to happen? You've just said that everything in one sense that we trust in, this visible picture of our religion, of what God is doing in our nation, of our security, of our eternal uh, place in God's plan, you're saying that's all going to be overthrown. I don't even know how to describe what that would mean for us to have it overthrown. I mean, there's really no words to describe. You know, the stock market will go away. Even that doesn't touch it. You said, you know, tomorrow in America, uh, you know, the entire power grid was going to be shut down forever. You know, even that doesn't quite. This, this for them would have been this stupendous reversal in the world. Well, when is that going to happen is what they ask. And Jesus gives his answer most succinctly in verse 32 when he says this, Nobody knows the day or hour. Nobody knows. He says, uh, the angels in heaven don't even know when this day is going to occur. 
And Jesus says, I don't even know. God's own son says, I don't know. Only the Father knows. Jesus couldn't have said this more clearly or more forcefully. Uh, you, you would think that this would have sort of put to rest the question of when exactly is Jesus coming back? But it hasn't. Uh, for 2,000 years now of church history, people have been trying to figure out when is the actual day? How do we read the signs of what's going on in the world in the heavens to know when Jesus is going to return? And yet here Jesus has said no one knows the hour. Uh, the seminary I attended a number of years before, there was this kind of legendary debate that happened between one of our seminary professors and a, a person who gained some national prominence making predictions about when the end of the world was coming and put, his, put a date on the calendar. And so in the, in the middle of this debate, kind of back and forth, finally the professor just looked at him and he said, look, th th this person making the prediction owned a series of uh, radio stations across the country, which was part of how he's getting his message out. And I can't remember the day that he was going to, you know, March 3rd, the, the world's going to end. So the professor said, look, why don't we just do this? Let's draw up the uh, legal contract so that on March 4th, all of your radio stations you'll turn over to me in, in my name. I mean, after all, you're not going to need them because none of us are going to be here on, on March 4th. Uh, and, and the guy wouldn't sign the papers. And <laughs> that was sort of the end of the debate at that, at that point. Because he got to that, are you going to put your money where your mouth is? Point. Because uh, we come back here to Jesus saying, look, no one is going to know the hour when that happens. But in spite of that, he says, there are many ways in which God's people may well be deceived along the way. Uh, and there, there are kind of three ways, he says. As he talks about, in the course of this section, he talks about world events. He says, uh, verse 7, that there, there are going to be wars and rumors of wars. Verse 8, earthquakes and famines. Could have also said tsunamis and nuclear disasters and fill in the blank. Verse 7, he says, these must take place, but the end is not yet. See, the perspective of the New Testament, when you see the phrase, the last days or the end times, those times began with the birth, death, and resurrection of Jesus. We all live in the end times. And so we do see a world in upheaval. And the end is coming. But Jesus says, these are just like the early birth pains before it comes. There's no way to know when he is ultimately going to return. And so that should give us a measure of stability as we weather the, even the natural disasters of our world. But second thing, he says world events. He also says false teachers. Verse 6, he says, many are going to come in Christ's name. Verse 21 and 22, he talks about many will come saying, I am he, I'm back, I'm Christ. And he says, don't, don't listen to them. Don't listen to those who would rise up as false teachers. You might have seen in the, the news in the last couple of weeks, there's a group, uh, a small group of people that own several uh, RVs that are traveling across the country right now telling people that the uh, world is going to end on May 21st. They've been in the news saying that Jesus has given them new revelation, that that is the day. And yet Jesus says, there are false teachers that are going to come and try to tell you otherwise, but no one knows the day or the hour when I'm going to return. And we see all kinds of false teaching. Maybe simply this, not the false teaching of Jesus is coming back on May 21st, but, you know, in one sense, uh, Jesus is not coming back, or maybe it doesn't matter, or maybe we've got everything we need right now. I mean, Jesus is here, he's in your life, and so he means for you to have uh, all the wealth that you need. He wants every disease that you have to be healed now, and if it's not being, then it's because of a lack of faith on your part. You know, God does promise us that he's going to return, that there's a day when all our wounds will be healed, when all our pain will be put back together again, when all our tears will be wiped away, when we will have everything we need. 
But the Bible also tells us that we are not there yet. God is with us now, here, but we are not there yet. If you're going to understand how to live life as a Christian in this world, don't be led astray by false teachers that would tell you that we get it all here and now, but we follow a king who is yet to come. So he says world events, false teachers. He also mentions here persecution. Verses 9 through 13, he says, don't let persecution steer you away either. Don't let that deceive you. Don't let that derail you. Because there's a temptation in persecution, isn't there? That there's this thought that, that if I'm going through this, then, then surely God must be absent or he has withdrawn his favor from me. He mentions even in families, families being torn apart as some uh, essentially in, in, in the context even around A.D. 70 of people being routed out to the authorities, even members of their own family, that we would even possibly, and certainly people in corners of this world experiencing the alienation of family members that turn against you because of your profession of Christ. He says, that persecution is a real thing. But he says, don't, don't let that turn you aside either. In fact, Jesus says we are guaranteed persecution in this world. Jesus says, look, they, they are going to persecute me. They are going to send me to the cross. And as he even in the book of Mark has already told his disciples, take up your cross and follow me. That persecution will be a part of the reality of following Jesus. He says, don't be deceived. And don't be thrown off when that comes even into our own lives. Okay, these two things, that, that he is returning, that, that we're not to be deceived and derailed. And in one sense, that's, as I've been looking at it this week, almost kind of the, the, the foundation or, or background to, to what Jesus hones in on at the very end of, the, of this passage. And it is those last number of verses in that last paragraph as he tells a parable. And this parable is really at the heart of this whole chapter, of what Jesus wants us to hear, even this morning as we walk away from this text. He tells a parable about a, uh, a master who is going away, and so he gives responsibilities and duties to his servants, including this doorkeeper whose job is to stay at the door and stay awake. And it says that the master is going, and you don't know when he's going to return. At which watch of the night? Is he going to come at 12 p.m.? Is he going to, or excuse me, 12 a.m.? Is he going to come at 2 a.m.? Is he going to come at daybreak? When is, when's he going to return? Jesus says in this parable, the point is you don't know when he'll return. Therefore, you must stay awake and be alert. Five times Jesus says in these few verses here, stay awake, be alert, stay awake. He calls us as his followers to stay awake. That's what he calls us to do in light of the fact that he is returning and that we're to live in light of that return. Stay awake so that he does not find you asleep at your post when he returns. This idea of being ready at all times. I was thinking a couple weeks ago, um, our uh, five, five-year-old son, Henry, started soccer season a couple weeks ago for the four-year-old and five-year-old league. You can imagine four-year-old and five-year-old league. So we showed up for his first game, which was also his first practice, which was also his first time on a soccer field. And <clears throat> we're good to go. And uh, so the coach starts the game. The two, you know, two teams are playing, and, and uh, Henry's team had, had three more guys on the team than they had space on the field. So you got three guys out on the bench, which is really just this kind of hill next to the field. And when you're on the bench, you know what you're supposed to be doing. You're supposed to be watching the game and paying attention so that when the coach calls you in, you come running in and you're ready. 
within 11 seconds of this game starting, there are kids over there, they're picking the flowers, they're chasing each other around, they're staring off into space, and at some point in the game, the coach turns around, and he's like, all right, you guys come in, and they're like, who is that talking? Oh, our coach, right. That, in, you know, that he expected, the coach expected his players to be ready to come onto the field, and they were distracted by many other things. We are called, we are called to stay awake to be on guard, to be ready. Uh, our, our elders this past week in our meeting were looking at this passage together, talking about it. And, uh, Camper re- reminded me of the illustration of, of, of firemen. Firemen have to be ready. That at a moment's notice, the, the bell goes off and people's lives are in your hands and, and you, your, your truck had better already be packed. You, you better have all the supplies on it that you already need. And, you know, firemen, they've got their, their uniforms sort of in a just in a little circle on the floor so they can step in and pull it up immediately and they are dressed. And, you know, the, it, it is going to take too long to go down the stairs so you get to slide down the cool pole so that you can go. To, there's, 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 every kid loves fire engines, right? I've got kids. Doesn't that sound cool? Okay, anyway, so. <laughs> but, you know, the point that, that they have to be ready. They have to be ready. They have to be awake. And that's what Jesus is saying to us as people. I am returning And you must live in light of that. You are to stay awake. Um, Staying awake can be incredibly difficult as we follow Jesus, even in some of the most overt ways in which we do that. Following Jesus entails all of life, but even some of the things that we do together, like corporate worship, can be very hard even to literally stay awake. Uh, Last week, my family and I, we were out of town on vacation and we, we, one night we stayed with friends and we went to church with them. And uh, you know, first lesson in, in vacation. If you go on vacation somewhere else and you go to church at a church that's not yours, just do yourself a favor. Don't go to the early service, uh, especially in daylight savings time. So, so last, you know, last week, here I am on vacation. We get up at what feels like 7.30 after not much sleep and we go to church. And we go to a church. It is a, it is a great church. But as we're singing, and I'm singing these hymns that are unfamiliar, and I'm, I'm sort of loopy tired, and, and then the pastor stands up to preach, and he is an excellent, unbelievable preacher. And, and I'm, you know, I just can't focus on one word that he's saying. Elizabeth at one point sees that this is what I'm going, to, going through, and she leans over and she said, um, now, now you feel a little bit better for the folks in our congregation. Because <laughs> you remember what it's like to listen to a sermon. Now I was listening to one of the very best. And just, I had one of those moments of like, even in the most literal way, but it is just hard. It is hard to keep our eyes open and certainly in so many other ways in our life of following Christ to stay awake, to stay alert, to have that sense of God is at work in our midst. And he means for us to keep our eyes on him. He has things that he is calling us to. He is at work. Are we going to be a part of that work? We're going to be asleep on the job. This week as I was uh, thinking about this passage, I, I, I was driving across town and, and this this passage was in the back of my mind, thinking about this sense of readiness. And, it, and at the same time, I was uh, rehearsing some things that were of immediate frustration to me during the course of the week. And uh, just getting, and, and, and as I realized with those two things, my frustration and this passage in the back of my head, I, I kind of had this thought of, you know, what would happen if, uh, if Jesus just came back now? I mean, he said he's coming back. If he came back now and he said, what are you doing And I said, well, I'm just sort of stewing on these things over here and being totally sidetracked instead of loving people and forgiving and being about the stuff you called me to. (laughs) I don't want to be caught in that day like that. Now, I say that not because 
of some sort of sense of, of crushing angst and fear. What would happen if God found me that way? God finds me that way every day, right? He sees us. He knows us. But more in the sense of God is doing things. He is at work in this world. And do I really want to be sitting on the sidelines being consumed by things that do not matter? Do I really want to be caught up in days filled with bitterness or frustration? Or do I really want to get about the business of what God is about, of forgiveness and reconciliation and healing? Do I, re- do I really instead want to see what God is doing and be a part of that? And so the realization that moment of I don't want Jesus coming back now was not the terror, but it was just that sense of what in the world am I doing? There are better things than this to be occupying myself with. What's going to give us this sense of staying awake? It is going to be seen that our king, our loving king, Our Jesus is coming back for us. And he calls us even now to stay awake because he has so much for us right now. And having our eyes on that can change things for us now. And in many ways, let me just give three ways that this call to stay awake and being on board with what Jesus is doing can really bring change for us. One, it gives transcendence to the routine. It gives transcendence to the routine of our lives. You know what it feels like to be in your life in the midst of the endless hassles at work, the endless homework, quizzes, tests, exams, papers in school, in college, in grad school, postdoc, right, for some of you. Uh, Perspective in the midst of the endless kids' runny noses and glasses of water in the middle of the night and question after question after question that all begin with, why, Daddy? in the midst of the endless loads of laundry, in the midst of our constant struggle every day uh, to maybe have a chance to carve out some time for prayer and reading the Bible and connecting with God, the struggle in our relationships and even sometimes especially our relationships with other Christians. See, his return tells us that there is a purpose in all that we do out of faithfulness to God. There is purpose in us standing at our post until he returns in even the most mundane things like our jobs and like our callings and chores in our family, in our studies, in all of it. Not just pictures of mass global evangelization. That matters too. In every little thing that God calls us to. He says you are to stand at your post. I am alive. I am at work around you. Are you going to have eyes to see it? Are you going to be a part of what I am doing or not? Will he find us faithfully standing at our posts? You see, it gives transcendence to the routine, even the mundane routines of life. The second thing it gives is uh, confidence in our sufferings and our struggles. See, in one sense, it relativizes them. You might be in the midst of significant struggle uh, right now. And that might be health struggle. That might be relational struggle. What, what, what do we see here? That, that Christ really is returning and as we've already said, that there, there really is a day coming when, when all wrongs are going to be righted, when all brokenness is going to be healed, when all diseases will be finally eradicated. There will be a day when there is no more disease and suffering. And that means that we can put our money on that, that he is returning and he is going to take care of us and heal us in, our, in its fullness at just the right time and Between now and then, we can trust that God is at work even now. He has that day in his mind, and he has us in his hands until he brings us to that day. He has it all, and he is coming back for us. 
transcendence and routine, confidence and suffering. And then just last thing, uh, it gives us, I think, a compelling vision of life. This is true for all of us, but, but let me just speak to one segment of us for a minute. If you were to look at the demographics of the church in the United States, you would see that there are, there are many more women who attend church than men. Why is that? Well, maybe this is part of it. Part of the reason that the church often misses the men. Maybe because uh, they have been taught the Bible in such a way or they read it in such a way that they think there is nothing here for me. There's nothing here that's big enough for my life. There's nothing here that's compelling enough for my life. Okay, this is about being sweet and nice to people and just waiting for Jesus to come back, but doesn't have anything to say about the real struggles and the real difficulty and the real challenge of life day by day. And I would say we're misreading the Bible if that's what we read. See, Jesus tells us here that we are to be people who are awake at our posts, that we are to be faithful because he calls us into the greatest of things in the universe, his return, his work of bringing healing and restoration to the world. A healing and restoration that comes in its fullness one day. But part of being alive and being awake and staying at our posts means that we are working towards that end even now. It means that we are not checking out in this world and simply waiting for Jesus to return. Jesus' care for this world drives us to be a part of this healing that's going to come. It means that we're supposed to care about the brokenness in the world. It means we're supposed to care that there's uh, an enormous portion of this world that's sunk in poverty, that there are people dying of diseases, that there are people suffering from the aftershocks of a tsunami, that there are people that are being exposed to radiation. We are supposed to care about all of those things. You see, God's uh, vision for the world encompasses the whole world and everything about it. And maybe what we don't hear sometimes enough as men, and it's true for women and children too, that what we don't hear enough is... That God's vision for what he would do with this world is uh, as big as vision and calling can possibly get. It encompasses incredible heroism. It encompasses incredible use of our intellectual gifts. It encompasses us working hard in the callings to which God calls us to. It encompasses everything about the way we use our money and the way we use our time. There is nothing bigger than this. And that comes into sharpest focus when we see that Jesus is returning the clock really is ticking. And that shouldn't make us scared. It should make us hopeful and energetic as we enter into what he has for us now. He's at work. He's called you, he's called me to be a part of this mission of changing the world, of bringing hope that comes only in Christ, of binding the wounds of the wounded, of bringing a cup of cold water to those in need. It encompasses all of it. See, this mission he calls us to engages not only all the world, but all that we do, and it matters for eternity. It matters. Let, let me just conclude with this. As Jesus speaks to us about his coming back and not being deflected or derailed from that. As he speaks to us about the call to stay awake. Um, there's another sleepy and for one sleepless night in the Bible. It's coming up in a couple chapters here in the book of Mark. A night in the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus uh, is praying the night before he is going to be crucified. And, and he goes away from most of the disciples. He takes Peter, James, and John with him and asks him in this moment of incredible trial on the eve of his death. He, he asks his three closest friends to, to stay awake with him, to watch and to pray. So he says, you stay here and watch and pray. I'm going to go over there and pray. And he comes back and, and his friends are asleep. And he wakes him up and said, couldn't, couldn't you even just stay awake for a little while? 
watch and pray. And he goes away and he comes back a second time and they're asleep. He comes back a third time and they're asleep. And he wakes them up. And he says, wake up. Here comes the crowd. You see, Jesus spent a sleepless night as his closest friends and closest servants were asleep at the watch. They were overcome with fatigue as he was overcome by anxiety and the fear of what he was to face as he contemplated not only his physical death but this gut-wrenching, soul-wrenching separation from God that he would taste the next day on the cross in a way that no one else ever would. You see, Jesus endured that sleepless night so that what he brought on himself the next day would never come crashing down on our heads. So that his sleeping disciples that night in the garden would be one day his energized disciples, would one day be his forgiven disciples, would one day be his disciples who were called out of their weakness and their failing to follow God. Not that they would somehow become supermen, but they would follow this Jesus who has done all for them. And he loved them even in their moment of weakness when they could not stay awake. And so you see, we can hear this exhortation to us to stay awake, to be alert. But we can hear it in confidence because Christ has been awake for us. And because the one who calls us to stay awake is not the God who now comes in judgment against us, but the one who comes in love and puts his arm around us as he holds us up, as he forgives us our failings, as he encourages us in our calling, as he whispers to us again and again, stay awake, be on guard, I am coming back. Let's pray.